Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody, Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. <laughs> yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live Online and Podcast. Oh, on this beautiful Melbourne morning, what better way to spend your time? Sit back, relax, and join us here on Three Triple R for Radiotherapy. What a start to a day after a three month lockdown. The sun is shining, it's another day of zero cases here in Victoria. Yay! And the numbers were close, right down to the wire. Yes, the Wallabies just beat the All Blacks in Queensland. Oh, I nearly forgot. And Biden takes the White House. Woohoo! <laughs> a woohoo from Panel Beater there. Yeah, that, that was a very subdued woohoo for one of the most momentous things that's happened. <laughs> It's a big deal. And um, also uh, another donut day. Yeah, eight in a row now. Is eight it? in a row. Fantastic, isn't it? I mean, all this good news and uh, a little shout out because it happens to be my younger daughter's 24th birthday today. So happy birthday, Olivia. Happy birthday, Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> so later in the show, we'll be talking to radiotherapy regulars Prudence Deer and Rainbow Doc about all about COVID vaccines, not, a, not about the actual vaccines themselves, but more about the types of trials, and how the testing works. And we'll be taking a really close look at the psychology and ethics of what are called human challenge trials. Can't wait to talk to them about that. Uh, before that, <laughs> there's nothing we like more here on Radiotherapy than coming across that next generation of inspiring young health professionals. And today we've got a special treat. We have two students, a medic and a pharmacist. And they want to transform how we approach our flu vaccination awareness and promotion. So I'm really looking forward to talking to them. But before we do that, we have some news. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. How are you today, panel, Peter? I'm enjoying that sunshine that you mentioned. It was a lovely walk in this morning. Wasn't it lovely? And it feels like the whole world has just taken a deep breath and just relaxed a little bit. It's like the entire global mental health has slightly improved with what happened in the White House. It, yeah, there is a vibe, isn't it? I mean, I always uh, have to then remind myself that I'm living in some kind of, um, you know, the People's Republic of the Inner North. <laughs> <laughs> Which can probably be extended to most Triple R listeners. So yeah, don't, Recognising audience diversity, I realise not everybody may be happy listening to what did happen in the White House, but yeah, I suspect maybe yeah. 99% are. I, uh, I treated myself to uh, go and do some what people are calling doom scrolling, where I where I went and looked at um, Twitter feeds of you know um, Trump supporters, and um, they're certainly certainly up in arms. All sorts of things are being said about that. Yes, well, it is, it is something I think is it's not just a laughing matter. I think there has been a real effect on some people's mental health. I think the anxiety over this outcome has really affected some people. I've been talking to a lot of people who've been just that little bit on edge, not sleeping so well. So hopefully a sigh of collective relief, blood pressure coming down and everyone feeling just that little bit better today. Well, to varying degrees of sincerity, people are calling um, you know, some aspects of the support for Trump very cult-like. 
And, you know, for a lot of people, if, if this is the end of his uh, political public life, um, people are going to have some kind of cult exit experience, aren't they? So can I get overly exercised about the cult exercise, uh, the, the, um, exit experience of Trump supporters? Hmm. I'll, I'll have to think I on reckon, that one. I reckon that... Yeah, no, I said uh, varying degrees of sincerity, yes. but, but certainly, certainly, yes, I'll, I'll leave it for another conversation, perhaps. So the, the little bit of catch-up news that I wanted to bring up, because a, a subject very dear to my heart, as regular listeners might know, is voluntary assisted dying. And since I was last on there, some momentous changes have occurred. And one of those is in New Zealand, where those who keep a keen eye on our friends across the water there will know that at the election, there was also a referendum on voluntary assisted dying, um, which is legally binding on the incoming government. And two thirds of the New Zealand voters uh, said, yes, they want a voluntary assisted dying legislation to come in in New Zealand. So that's going to happen. Hey, Dr. Nick, I've got a question about that. I reckon you know the answer to. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was reading through the detail of it, trying to do a bit of a compare contrast with the Victorian legislation and other legislation around the world, um, one thing that stood out for me was that part of the process is that two doctors need to agree with the patient and all of the other um, um, uh, criteria look very similar. But the one thing that looked different was that if the two doctors don't agree, the next step is to a psychiatrist. Oh, I missed that. As next step to a psychiatrist. So, what, in other for, words, is the psychiatrist for the doctors or for the patient? <laughs> <laughs> Leave me out of this. <laughs> um, the um, um, yeah, whereas my understanding is that more commonly psychiatrists are in the initial evaluation at simultaneous with the consulting doctors. Mostly, a psychiatrist involvement is only if there's any real question about things like severe depression, which could be treated, um, or whether the patient has the capacity to make a rational decision on their own behalf. Uh, That's certainly true in Victoria. I missed that in the the New Zealand legislation. I'll have to have a look through. But the exciting news is they'll be bringing it in. Also, the Queensland election means it's uh, almost a certainty that it'll go through in Queensland in future. Tasmania, um, we've been very involved with Mick Glasby in the upper house, private members bill. Never managed to get one of those up through Tasmania for this before, but it looks like it's going through the upper house and, and then we'll see what happens in the lower house. And finally, we know that WA is in the implementation phase, having brought uh, it into law um, just uh, ooh, months ago now. I can't remember exactly when, maybe even 12 months ago. Um, so real, real upsurge in what's happening in voluntary assisted dying around the nation across the channel, which is uh, gladdens my heart. So, panel beater, um, I'm going to ask you to fire up some stationed announcements while we get on the telephone line our next guests. We'll be looking forward to talking to a couple of students who've been working, looking, for, looking at how we can enhance our flu vaccine uptake. We'll see what they have to say after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I'm hoping that we have online two students, Katja Vosdenko and Yanni Liu. Are you there? Thank you so much for having us. Hi, we're both here. So happy, grateful to be here. Now, first you have to tell me, did I get your names right? 
Perfect. Yes, Yoni Lu, Cardio Godzenko. Well done. Now, um, just tell us first of all, um, Katya, I think you're a medical student. Just tell us who you are to begin with. Right. So, Yoni and I have been best friends since high school, and we're just finishing up our first year at Monash Uni. Yoni's studying pharmacy, but I'm studying medicine. Okay. I'm and combining both fields, we make a really dynamic team. Yeah, <laughs> and we're both really enthusiastic about healthcare, care, and making positive change in the community. Fantastic. Now, you've won a, some competition or other, which is really confusing for an old bloke like me. Can you just go from the beginning and explain <laughs> what it is that you're doing so we get the background? Of course. So, Yani discovered this competition, which is called the Influenza Idea Hackathon, through her a pharmacy faculty. So, a huge thank you to Tina Brock in the pharmacy. Shout out to Tina Brock. The competition itself has uh, two parts. The first part is when you have to brainstorm with a team about why people don't get vaccinated from influenza. And the second part is brainstorming solutions of how we can encourage people to get their vaccinations. The second part was the solution part where we looked at the root causes and our solution was really focused on a humanised approach by sharing not just the facts about the flu, but also stories. And our solutions really come down to a flu app and a flu action week that we're working on with the Immunisation Coalition right now. So if we, if we go back to the start, the reason this matters is because the uptake of flu vaccine is actually lower than ideal, isn't it? Can you just tell us why we're concerned about this? Yeah, Absolutely. So although for patients in high-risk groups, so people um, over the age of 60, people with diabetes, people with cardiovascular disease, the influenza vaccine is all free for them. We still have people not getting vaccinated. So, in fact, less than half who are over 50 get vaccinated, and that's a really high-risk group. Yes. Okay, so, so the figures show yeah. that less than half of people in that over 50 age, age group are getting vaccinated. And so is that the group that, in a sense, your yes. project is targeting? Yes, that's exactly correct. So we're working towards that humanised approach, engaging as many of the community as possible. And so from our research, we found that the root causes um, were really about vaccine hesitancy from misinformation. Second of all, we have a lack of awareness surrounding the severity of influenza. It's not just a bad cold, it can get very severe. And finally, the current promotion that we have is too overwhelming with facts and statistics without a human connection. And you said vaccine hesitancy. Do you mean that the over 50 age group are sceptical about whether it works or what, what's the hesitancy about, do we know? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it's partially coming from the Wakefield study that was debunked um, earlier in the 2000s. Uh, this cohort of people um, were like adults when this uh, Wakefield study came out, and they tend to still believe that vaccines can cause diseases rather than actually save you from them. Terrifying to say, but uh, Andrew Wakefield, who was the corrupt author of that study, which was published in The Lancet, was someone I worked with back at the Royal Free Hospital decades ago. Oh, really? okay. <laughs> I shall immediately <laughs> disown that statement. <laughs> um, so, it, so we know that um, flu vaccine uptake is suboptimal in a group at high risk, the 50 plus year olds. So there's this competition comes out to say, okay, show this, you can do something about it. Uh, what were your ideas and to, and to whom did you have to present these ideas? 
Yes, so after our competition was uh, completed, we were approached by the CEO of the Immunisation Coalition, Kim Sampson, and we presented our ideas, the flu app as well as the flu action week, to the whole flu score team. And so currently we have a flu action week planned already, scheduled in for April 2021 in both Melbourne and Sydney town halls with vaccination booths, trivia, games, as well as, as, well as an arts and film prize. Ah, I love it. Hearts and Film Prize. Yes. What, what can you win just by having a flu vaccine? Oh, we're very excited about the um, Hearts and Film Prize. It's about promoting flu vaccination to a new demographic. Um, so we're targeting the primary, secondary and tertiary students where they can create a short video, like really tiny, 60 seconds, or an arts project, like a sculpture or a drawing, to help share the importance of um, vaccination and they can win some awesome prizes. We'd love for everyone to get involved and engage the community as much as possible. The videos can also be included in the Flu Action Week as well. Ah, and who's, who's going to judge who's done the best video or sculpture? <laughs> that is an excellent question. We're actually currently recruiting judges, but we're very excited that we have Peter Doherty as one of our main judges on the panel. Oh. Tell us more. Well, um, he's just this amazing scientist that's done um, a lot to progress Melbourne and Australia in the scientific field, and he'll help judge these videos or art projects based on how like engaging they are, how relevant they are to the Australian context, um, and how clear the message is. And you also mentioned that you're developing a flu app. Now, there seems to be an app for absolutely everything, including finding the nearest public toilet and that sort of thing. Why are people going to download a flu app? Absolutely. So the whole idea behind the app is based on the Health Direct model, where you can find important information, reminders, book an appointment with a GP as well, as well as the locations of pharmacies around Australia. So we're currently developing that right now, and we just want to get as many of not only the older, high-risk groups involved, but also the younger generation to go in and get vaccinated each year for influenza. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about the influenza itself because it's slightly taken a back seat during COVID. Um, I'm sure you'll be aware of this, that the data show that there's been almost no influenza in Australia this year because of all our social distancing and hand washing. Maybe you should just be promoting that we should be staying in isolation and wearing masks. Well, well, that method would be effective in uh, preventing influenza as well as all infectious diseases. It's also not a realistically fun way to live our lives. You know, we want to communicate with people. We want to not stay in our houses like Melbourne has for the last what feels like four or five months. Um, so we think what's happened to influenza specifically is that as we're going out of lockdown, we'll see a resurgence in the numbers. So on average, about... 300,000 Australians get influenza, and that's quite high. That's like a third of a million getting a preventable disease. Um, and approximately 7%, 7% from 300,000 will have to go to hospital, and that's, that's a large amount of people going to hospital for something that we can all help stop. And that's a, that's a very, very important statistic, isn't it? You're saying nearly a third of a million Australians will get influenza despite us having a vaccine that's effective against it, um, and that... 7% or so of those people will end up in hospital. Um, so th that's a huge number. And if we think of influenza deaths over the years? 
Um, right. So out of those 7%, we have around 1,000 um, dying from the disease. But keep in mind, influenza deaths are largely underreported. It's sort of like you come to the hospital with influenza and you might get something else on top of that. So you might officially die from like pneumonia. But it's induced from influenza. Yeah, it's a really good point, that's isn't it? Yeah, yeah well, it's so important. Yeah, and uh, and people forget this. We've we've had under a thousand deaths in this country from COVID, partly due to <laughs> managing in the end to contain it well. Uh, and yet, influenza traditionally kills more than that every year in this country, and we have a vaccine for it. A, qu- a question, which maybe this may be a really unfair one, but it's a question that, <laughs> that that bothers me a little bit. When we start to come out of lockdown, I know we've got summer here. I know we've got very small numbers of influenza cases circulating, but. Since since everybody had their vaccine well in advance this year and uh, maybe their immunity is wearing off, do you think there's any chance we'll have a late outbreak of influenza as we come out of lockdown? Yes, perhaps that could be a case, definitely. Um, we're optimistic, though, and we do want to improve that vaccine rates for influenza, and that's why we proposed in April next year to have the vaccination booths in both Melbourne and Sydney. We do want it to become a national event, and we're looking and working really hard towards incorporating all the states and territories for this vaccination booth, where you can come in and get uh, influenza vaccination for free, as well as being part of our games and activities as well. Um, I think we're going towards the right direction in um, having that higher health awareness and consciousness, yeah. I heard you say get your vaccination for free, but the, traditionally the influenza vaccine has not been free for people unless they have risk factors. If you're under 65, unless you had things like diabetes or asthma, uh, you had to pay for your flu vaccine. Is, is there going to be a change to that? Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Just to clarify, uh, what required to get a vaccination for free is that for our activities at Flu Action Week, that it will be offered at the vaccination booths so that we're organising the Flu Action Week next year. And we have a free coffee as well at the vaccine vaccination booth. For actual um, vaccinations for influenza, you will need to book an appointment with a GP or go to your local pharmacy, and that's around $15. And yes, you're completely right. For high-risk groups, that would be free of charge for the vaccinations. Now, now, the thing that bothers me, um, you two, you're supposed to be studying like crazy and, and learning to be good doctors and pharmacists, and yet here you are spending all your time working on the flu, which is entirely admirable. Um, but how can you possibly do this while becoming um, and pass your exams in medicine and pharmacy? Yes, that's a really great question. And... I think it's always about that balance. You know, we can't be studying 24-7 around the clock all the time. And I think working a project for our community, giving back and planning influenza vaccinations is a great way to balance that study as well. And fundamentally, Yanni and I are studying to be pharmacists and doctors now, not just finishing high school and worrying about the exams. So we're trying to do things that make us better healthcare professionals. And we believe that Improving, improving influenza vaccination is right up that alley. Well, I, I hope you manage to maintain the rage and maintain the enthusiasm. It sounds like a fantastic project. I'm hugely impressed. I think when I was in my first year at medical school, um, I don't think I was thinking very carefully about um, national health and um, strategies for improving anything. I think I was more worried about um, how to get to the bar and, uh, and whether I was going to get on, up in time for the next lecture. 
That's always a concern as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, th- thank you very much for your time. I would uh, say a huge congratulations and massive admiration from myself and Panel Peter and everyone at Triple R for the work that you're doing. Um, and um, keep it up. And uh, we will look forward to maybe talking to you uh, in the, in the, uh, um, the autumn, isn't it, next year and seeing how it's all going. Um, thank you very much for joining us on this radio station. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Katja Gvozdenko, a medical student, and Yanni Liu, a pharmacy student, both from Monash, both (laughs) first-year students. I mean, wow. I cannot imagine (laughs) myself ever having done something like that. I am so impressed by these people. That's just fabulous. Ah, well, shortly, shortly we'll be talking with Prudence Deer about all matters to do with COVID vaccine trials, how the vaccines are tested, the difference from other types of trials and, and what we mean by human challenge trials. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Panel Peter, um, you you had an inspirational thought. I thought it was inspirational <laughs> about uh, flu vaccine non-take up. Just tell us what you were telling me. Yeah, so I um, I uh, work on a couple of universities at a couple of universities, Melbourne and um, RMIT, and both of them offer staff um, ready access to the flu vaccine each year, right? And um, the uh, I did a little bit of a around the halls type question of people who were and weren't uh, going and accessing it. And the common denominator that I thought I was able to identify in people, you know, well into adulthood, let's use that instead of giving it a particular age, well into were if they'd never had the flu and they had never had the shot, there was a cognitive distance and it would be that um, I don't need it. I don't fall into that category. However, anyone who had either had the flu or had had the shot earlier in life would get it almost routinely every year. So there you go, Yanni and Katya, if you're listening still. There's a food for thought from Panel Beta. So I, I completely agree with you, PB, because um, people I've talked to who haven't had it before say, no, I don't get the flu. What would I need that for? So, um, I hear uh, on the line we have Prudence, dear, and that's a wonderful segue, Panel Beta, talking about cognitive dissonance. Welcome, Prudence. <laughs> I'm not a source of cognitive dissonance. No, no. Cognitive um, assonance? No. Uh, lovely well, to, still got some cognition. That's the important thing. Yeah, good to have you on. Good to have you on the line now. Um, COVID, of course, has so dominated news. It was hilarious yeah. hearing Trump, 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 <laughs> Trump, a few weeks back going, "Oh, COVID, 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 COVID." I'm sick of hearing yeah. about it. Well, we're we're not sick of talking about it. Um, but but you've been thinking about COVID vaccines. Um, tell well, us what. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I know, and I think it was great having those students on earlier because, I mean, you know, they've really raised some important factors that we need to consider, really, don't we? Because um, I guess, you know, here we are, seeing some relaxation around the, yeah, around the sort of restrictions we've had in Victoria. But we kind of know, don't we? I think um, that, that if this stuff comes back, you know, what's the solution? I'll go back into lockdown? You know, that's not going to work, exactly. Um, so we need to find ways of protecting people, don't we? And, and so vaccines... Uh, have obviously been um, the, the next line. And we've heard, I think, quite a lot in the last 
few months about the importance of vaccine uh, development and um, and even how fast things need to be happening i think so it is extraordinary, I, I isn't it? That, it's extraordinary how yeah. quickly it has been happening. And I think last count, there, there are about 52, I think, vaccines have come to human trials. So um, mm. moving into this... Um, you know, Changing, some, absolutely. Yeah, extraordinary. Changing every day. Yeah. And some have already been approved. I mean, there are two Russian um, vaccines that have already been approved well, by when you Russian say, authorities, you, of course. Yes, when you say approved, approved by whom? But <laughs> yes. Um, I'm perhaps I could mention that. I mean, but I think, you know, um, there is a, there's a big sort of question, and, it, and partly got raised as well again with your guest earlier. I think that you know we need to have we need to have confidence that these vaccines are both going to be effective and safe. And I think also an important thing there is that you know there's kind of two two approaches here. I mean, the, the vaccines can provide direct protection to high risk individuals because we vaccinate them, but then as we've heard, not everybody um, has access to them or or can have them, perhaps for other medical reasons or for informational reasons, don't choose to have them. So the other side of the coin also is that, well, if we if we immunise the population more generally, we can approach that thing called herd immunity, which has been talked about, and where we, where we provide a community-wide sort of level of protection. And I think one of the kind of realities, I've been doing a bit of study and a bit of reading this week, and, um, you know, the, the expert immunologists and so on are basically saying that in terms of a virus like um, COVID, that there's no examples of obtaining herd immunity through natural methods. In other words, letting it run rampant through the community actually doesn't end up providing a sufficient protection to the community. So, so vaccination... Um, and to quote one of those immunologists, you know, vaccination is the only ethical means to achieve herd immunity. And, and, and that, of course, means yes. Yeah, and, and the word in there is enough. and the word in there is ethical. So keep going. Yeah. Well, I think we'll get to ethics later. I know that Rainbow wants to talk a bit about ethics, yes. but I think I think the key thing there is though that you know we are talking about a massive number of of people being exposed to these to these materials, these vaccines, and actually, vaccine you know science has been around for quite a while now. It's actually in one of the most incredibly safe forms of um, you know medical intervention. And by and large, of course, I mean, we're, 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 we're treating somebody who hasn't got a disease at this point in time. So well, so it's, it's such an important point, that, isn't it, Prudence? Because there's one yes. thing to be taking a potentially risky drug when you've got a disease, when you know, if I don't take it, yes. things might turn really nasty. But that's the point, isn't it? We're giving vaccines to healthy people. So they Absolutely. have to be, have to be really, Super really safe. safe. Yes, and, and we have to be able to assure that. So we need to test these things out, and we don't just test them in the laboratory, of course. I mean, you know, we do. that's where we start. And, again, we, we know that some types of technologies uh, have been tested quite well over, you know, decades, whereas actually part of the COVID sort of experience is that we are using really, like, the latest and greatest leading-edge sort of technologies around things like recombinant DNA and so on. And we perhaps don't know so much about how safe and effective some of these things are. So the testing um, is crucial. And I mean, there's a lot of testing that's going to be done in the lab. We're going to be trying to work things out in petri 
dirty dishes and so on. But then at some point we need to start working on, you know, it, it moves to animal models almost invariably. Um, and then finally, if things look promising, and probably even at that stage, a large number of candidate vaccines fall by the wayside. But so then we get so to the prudence, point of human testing. Yes, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but a lot of people hear about these phase one, phase two, phase three, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and I think it's slightly confusing for people to know what that means. Do you want to just uh, yeah, clarify what they that. are? For sure. And that's really when we get to the human testing. And, and in the way that vaccines in particular are tested is that we will we'll start off by, you know, just taking a small group of people and injecting them with the, with, with the, with the, the trial material, the vaccine that we want. To so this is the phase one. The phase one. And really all we're doing is basically at that point seeing is, is it even safe? You know, does it make people sick? Well, I'm kind of getting an idea that, OK, this, this might be OK. Well, so they'll go and inject 50, 60 people or something and just you know, fingers crossed, mm -hmm. and watch them very closely. Then we kind of move on to a second phase of trials, which is actually to try and find a dose that might be suitable, because we want to give people the minimum dose, really. We don't want to give you, you know, overdose you on any of these sorts of materials. So that's what kind of happens with a larger group of people, and they will try different doses and sort of see, maybe measure things like, Again, sort of side effects, adverse effects, but also be looking at, oh, can we measure, you know, blood levels of antibodies or whatever to see if we get a kind of response. So and that's then, a phase I, two trial. We're giving it to larger numbers and maybe also then right. extending it to older or younger people so that to yes, checking it out in different, different groups. age groups. Yep. Yeah, how's it go with, that's right, with old people? Do they have more problems with those doses? And then if we're fairly confident, we can say, we know what, you know, and that's relatively safe. We know we've got to we know what the doses need to be and the sorts of groups of people. Let's go for a big group. That might be tens of thousands of people across the community. Um, give them the vaccine. And then generally what we do, one of the ways of doing this is to wait. Basically, we'll wait and see, do they get the disease or not? In other words, from natural exposure in the community. And we might divide our population up into two groups, ones who get, who actually get the real vaccine and ones who get, what, injected with some sterile water. And so we have a control group and we may do what's called randomising. So we'll actually, people will get allocated to the control group or the actual treatment group through some magical process. They, they, even they don't know what, what they're getting. And actually, it could be what's called blind. And in those blind trials, the doctors or nurses that are giving the injections don't know whether the person's being given the real vaccine or the placebo. Now, I'm just um, going, to be, I'm going to bring panel beater in here because I can yeah, see him twitching beater. in the other studio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to see that. That makes everybody nervous, I'm sure. Okay. No, the, one of the things that I've um, been really uh, pleased to see during the week was um, the Sinovac trials, the, which are into phase three. Perhaps, um, I think there are mm -hmm. five vaccines that are in phase three at the moment. Yeah. Um, and they've just given 60,000 people yeah. um, the shot. But what's really interesting, um, both just on a scientific level, but also for something that's going to matter um, to um, universities in Australia and the wider community, mm. therefore, is that part of the target recruitment for these 60,000s were students who were planning to study abroad where the coronavirus was, was active. Yeah. And so a very significant number of these um, 
in this 60,000 are uh, students currently in China, but with places for university in the UK. Yeah. And so we're going to, and, and we're at like 20,000 in the UK at the moment, I think, you know, 20,000 um, yeah. cases or something. Um, and and interestingly there, the uh, in the UK, uh, campuses were a hotspot very, very quickly. Um and so we're going to see very soon um, some of these results that you're talking about. We're going to be able to um, look at this uh, group of uh, vaccinated um, students. Um, yeah. Admittedly, they're younger, so they're less at risk, and maybe that'll be offsetting. But um, but still, it's uh, encouraging. Absolutely. Now, look. I mean, you know, obviously, you want to see people get exposed to the to COVID, and then then, but it still takes time. Obviously, it takes months, if not actually, you know, follow up for a year or more to see if those people develop symptoms or not, and whether there's a statistical difference between the groups who got the vaccine and the groups who were the controls. And I think one thing that I was quite astounded by was that you know the absolute baseline for effectiveness, the kind of the measure, would be you know getting a uh, getting kind of protection in 50% of the people given the vaccine, which surprised me. I thought, well, that's rather low, isn't it? So, you know, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line, and we'd obviously like to see higher results than that. But that, if, if 50% of the people given the, vac- the actual vaccine were shown to have been protected, that would have been considered a successful kind of trial and a successful vaccine. And I, I wonder if people realise that actually it's not 100%. Well, that's going to be a hundred percent. I think that's one of the things we've uh, been sort of beaten around the head a bit with, or is it all the publicity around mm. the vaccines? Is that we cannot expect perfection, particularly with it being rushed through. Anything that provides at least some no. protection is what we're looking for. But one of the yeah. the, the questions then ar- question then arises: when you need to have these people um, exposed to the disease, how do we actually do that and get this through more quickly? Because that's normally something wow. which takes years, and yet we're trying to well, get yeah. this vaccine pushed through in record time. Yeah, so then we come into the the world of the human challenge study, right? Uh-huh. So, so they're doing this in the they're about to do this in the UK now and it, it's again it's a standard kind of protocol but what they're planning on doing is getting I don't know I think about 60 to 90 young healthy people and they're going to give them covid. They're going to find a strain that's what they considered, you know, not too kind of aggressive, one of the mutations that's, uh, rel- you know, less what, dangerous. What, gentle COVID? Gentle COVID, that's right. And they're going to try and find, they want to find what is the smallest dose, the smallest amount of COVID, you know, virus that you need to give to somebody to pretty much guarantee giving them symptoms. So they're going to expose, you know, as I say, 60 to 90 young people two doses of COVID, and obviously some of them are going to absolutely definitely develop the disease. So they're going to be taken into isolation. They're going to be kept in a hospital. I think, actually, maybe even the Royal Free or somewhere. And um, they're going to be kept and looked after so that if they do develop disease and if they develop, you know, a bad response to the disease, you know, they will have full ICU treatment and everything else. But that's a bit scary in itself. But that's only the first part, right? Bear in mind, these people have are not, they're not getting any benefit from this whatsoever. But then once we know, once, once the researchers know the smallest dose that will, will evoke a response in a, in a group of people, they're then going to um, vaccinate a group of people with a test vaccine and then use, use that dose of COVID as a test, as a challenge to, to, uh, to, to humans and so, see how much protection the vaccine gives us. 
So we've got two two aspects to the trial. One is just yeah. people are getting no protection at all. They're just being given the disease yep. to see what yep. dose is required to give you yep. the disease. And then another mm. group of people come along and half and half, placebo and, and real, whichever yeah, vaccine probably. it is, and then have this, I suppose they're going to put a swab up their nose, but this time contaminated with the virus and, and see how many get it. That is quite a thought, isn't it? And this is what we call it human is. challenge trials. It is. Now, look, and I mean, obviously, there are some significant ethical potential issues here. This is human experimentation, you know, taken really to quite an extreme in some ways. And But it might speed up the whole process. I mean, we, as we just said, you know, these, even these phase three trials can take one or two years, whereas you probably could rattle through, um, you know, one of these challenge trials in a matter of months um, and really get some very solid kind of results. So the question then becomes, well... Yep. Look, you know there are there are risks to the to the participants, but they they can have all that explained to them. And in terms of time, and with the number of cases that we've got of COVID around the world, you know the potential life saving here could be substantial if you can get the vaccine manufactured and delivered. You know, once we've shown it's safe and effective, can we get it out there fast enough? We could save, obviously, an incredible number of lives and not just lives in terms of death, but in terms of lost quality of life. Um, you know, people ending up with long-term injury from, from COVID exposure. And you've, yeah. you've kind of touched on the concept of the ethics of this, and we're going to talk more about that in a yeah. moment with Rainbow. But I just want to ask Absolutely. you the question, Prudence, before we finish. Um, human challenge trials, uh, um, have they been used much in the past in medical research? Yes, yes, they have. And I think um, things like they've been used for testing uh, malaria and uh, other forms of sort of treatments and so on. So actually, yeah, but it's not un- unknown. But, it'll, but in an ideal world, of course, you want, to, you want to already have a treatment for the thing that you're going to test against. All right, so so if you if you know that oh, okay, we're going to expose you. I mean, you could do something, for example, what what tuberculosis. I mean, that's a pretty nasty disease, but we know actually, if we put you in hospital, give you lots of antibiotics, you'll probably be fine. Yes, it's not very. The same thing. Yeah, it's not very reassuring with COVID. We could try with some hydroxychloroquine and some bleach. Yeah. We don't know that we can, we can we can't cure you of COVID, and we don't know what necessarily to do to stop you dying at this point in time. So that that, that I think is the crux. Wow. Okay, Prudence. Well, thank you very much for bringing all this to our attention. And we're going to go on in a minute after the break and we'll be talking with Rainbow about uh, where this takes us in the ethical considerations. Prudence, lovely to hear your voice. Great to talk to you. And hopefully we'll catch up with you soon in the studio. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to that. And then we can have a proper debate about ethics and stuff. I can't wait to hear what Rainbow's got in. All right. Um, uh, That was Prudence Deer talking about um, the vaccine trials and we're going to have Rainbow here in just a second. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform online we've got rainbow doc hi rainbow hello how are you dr nick oh lovely to hear your voice and before we go and pick up what prudence was talking about i just want to ask you about something i read about donald trump in the paper today and get your comment on this as a psychologist i just i love this someone said in freudian terms trump is the ultimate id all instinct and impulse unchecked by any real controls Mm, we'd all like to be that, wouldn't we? The ultimate id. 
Can you imagine if we were all the ultimate id? <laughs> well, we've seen what happens when the leader of the free world is an ultimate id. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um, somewhat concerning, but um, we can all relate to we can all relate to this. I think to people that we know, probably in our lives, but that's you know small scale. So we all know what we're talking about here. It's we don't like to talk about it amongst our friends in relation to our friends. But when you've got someone running, yeah, the United States, it's pretty damn important, hey? Sure, and thank goodness we've got a bit of ego and superego, hopefully back in the White House. Uh, let's go back to <laughs> let's go back to the COVID vaccines because we were talking with Prudence just a moment ago about the process, how the trials are working, and um, moving on to this question about human challenge trials, which raises some really thorny ethical and psychological questions. So. I just want to turn that one over to you, Rainbow. Yeah, I mean, as, as Prudent as Prudent said at the end of um, when she was speaking to you, um, there's no cure. We don't have a cure, and so the idea of in, infecting, deliberately infecting someone, um, is is fraught with ethical considerations. And you know, there's been some some criticism of ethicists at the moment in the fact that ethical considerations are likely to slow down the process of finding vaccine. Um, you know, we 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 want the vac we want the vaccine as quickly as we can, and uh, being held up by ethical considerations there is a potential for it to slow it down. But it needs to be slowed down because we need to get this right. We need to be doing something whereby the benefits of what we're doing outweigh the risks. And that's kind of the basis of an ethical approach to this. It's fairly easy, I think, to say that if we could find a vaccine, it potentially saves millions of lives around the world. So it's fairly easy at a sort of simplistic level to say almost anything we do um, will be the benefits will outweigh the harms. But for the individuals involved, of course, that's not the case. So let's just think about who who might be the volunteers or who are the volunteers for human challenge trials. How does the process work and what would lead someone to volunteering for something like this? Well, generally people volunteer because they want to do something. They're feeling helpless and they want to do something. They want to do something that's going to have impact. Um, and of course, if you don't, if you're feeling helpless and there is nothing to do, all that happens is you, you feel more helpless and that's not a great feeling. So it's understandable that volunteering for a trial is going to make you feel good. It's going to make you feel that you're doing something. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of concern in the general public about who is volunteering and why are they volunteering, what, what, what this is all about, how are they being protected, you know, are they being protected. And, and it's important to, to know that, you know, the World Health Organization has, has um, extensive guidelines as to ethical practice in, in trials and, and a large part of that is, is, protecting, is protecting the participants. So there's there's um, great attention given to informed consent. So firstly, the person that's volunteering needs to understand what they are um, agreeing to. And in this instance, they have to, they have to be fully aware that they are 
um, engaging in something for which there is no cure and willing to take that risk. Of course, some people are bigger risk takers than others. Um, if you, you know, if you did a, a vox pop on this and walked down the street and asked people, there are a lot of people who say, no, I would never do that. They are not risk takers. And, and, and that's okay. You know, there are enough people out there who are, one, willing to take risk, but also have a sense of wanting to, to do something and know, they, to help, help the world. And are people taking this risk because they're being paid a ridiculous amount of money to do so? Well, there's generally payment involved. It might be small amounts. It might be, you know, hundreds. It might be thousands. But the payment isn't there as compensation. The payment is really there uh, to assist people if they're taking time off work to do this, that, that, that kind of thing. So it's, it, it may be seen as an incentive. I think there's a lot of concern that people do this just for the money, but there are, there are checks in place in the process of recruiting people that ensure that someone who is doing it just for the money and really needs the money is probably someone that maybe isn't suitable for the trial because they're likely to be someone that is in some way disadvantaged. Is there, um, a, is there a potential argument to say that anyone who volunteers who's not doing it for the money should in fact have uh, intensive psychotherapy rather than be enrolled in the trial? If someone who is doing it not for the money? Yes, so if, they, if someone's choosing to do this, um, part of me thinks, well, there must be something that's deeply troubling for that person. They've got a sense of hopelessness, maybe despair, uh, maybe even suicidal ideation or something. Why would I take part in a trial which I might die um, where there's no treatment for the product? Um, are these uh, people who volunteer for this, are they uh, assessed by um, a mental health professional? Oh, as you're saying that, Dr. Nick, I, I, I feel, oh, I feel a very kind of negative view of the human race or the human, <laughs> the human being, because I, I think there are people that want to do this genuinely. They want to do something. Um, they want to do something good. They want to do something that's helpful, and that's okay. It's very different from someone that has an idea that they're going to save the world. That is different. You don't want that kind of person in the trial, right? Someone that has that view um, because it's not healthy. You, you don't want someone that has got mental health issues that are going to be likely to be exacerbated by this, you know. It's not, it's not a cure for mental health issues or feeling completely helpless in life to engage in a trial because you're going to be, um, you, you're going to be isolated as part of the trial and... Uh, you need to be mentally very healthy to participate. And all those checks are, take, are, are done. So, so is that the case? So people taking part in human challenge trials are psychologically assessed uh, before yes. they're accepted for the trial? Yes, for sure. They're physically and they're psychologically assessed to ensure that... Um, to ensure minimising the risk to those people as they engage in the trial. They know that there is a certain risk. Um, there was a challenge tr trial um, some years ago uh, for yellow fever that was stopped midway because three of the participants died. So the, at that point, it was assessed that the risk was too great for the other participants. You know, when you sign up for a trial, you can withdraw at any time. That's, that's a really important condition of it. That you may start at the beginning and then you might get you know, get a bit wobbly about doing it and you can withdraw. 
it's a condition of any trial and eth- uh, that, that, that meets ethical, um, ethical, ethical guidelines. So having thought about this and having looked at it, what's your view about the ethics of, of human challenge trials for something like COVID, for which we do not have uh, known effective treatment? Um, I, I don't know whether I want to give an opinion on this because it's 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 really grey area. I'm, I'm, I, I can see that we need to do these trials. Nevertheless, um, uh, it's it's really challenging. The, the the public needs to be informed about what's happening as well because otherwise it's kind of mistrust as to, 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 to what's going on here. You know, often it's suggested that um, health professionals, because they are exposed to the virus, um, are, are great people to be, you know, and they can have informed consent because they understand what they're doing through their work. But nevertheless, you don't want to be pressurising people to, to take part in these trials. It has to be voluntary. There's a huge difference, isn't there, between a, um, a, a putting your hand up for maybe an experimental vaccine and <clears throat> putting your hand up for a vaccine where after that you're actually going to be inoculated with the virus. I think that's the thing which is... And panel beta, just a quick comment from yeah, yourself. Yeah, very quickly. Um, the other con- compare contrast that I think is useful is, say, something with, like, organ uh, donation. You can donate a kidney, but you are told what the risks are. You know it's one in 3,000 that you'll die from um, giving your kidney. Um, we don't have that figure with this, uh, with this uh, human trial. Yeah, it's all very, very, very unknown. Oh, the unknowns. Rainbow, thank you very much for helping us think through that very thorny topic. Um, I'm just glad that no one's going to ask me to take part in the human challenge trial. Too well, too gnarly, probably too immune incompetent. Uh, Rainbow, lovely to hear your voice. Thank you very much. And that was Rainbow Doc, and it's nearly time for us now to wrap up. And it's just time for us to say thanks to our inspirational guests, Katja Kovsdenko and Yanni Liu, uh, to our wonderful telephone panellists, Rainbow Doc and Prudence Deer. And a particular thank you to Panel Beta for contributions, keeping this whole thing rolling. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.